All right, we're going to get started right on time today. And we are in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So if this is the first time joining us or your first time listening along on the podcast or the video, uh, we do this study every week. And Roots Crisp graciously provides the food for us. And they bring out amazing desserts like this so that we can come and uh, share a meal together. And that's something that's incredibly biblical. Um, Those of you that have been coming for a few years, you've seen just in the first five books of the Bible that we've looked at how biblical it is, how much of an emphasis there is on eating together. And that's in fact what today's section is all about in Deuteronomy 16, is this idea of sharing meals together. And that's why God's really, he, He cares about it. In the Old Testament, God cares about Israel um, as a people, even down to how they eat and what they eat. Not just clean and unclean foods, but where they eat and, and how they go about sharing meals together. And so when you come and you have a, a Bible study like this, it's, much, uh, they're, they're, it, it's very much in line with how people have, have gotten together, God's people, for millennia. Coming together around a meal. And that's something that churches have lost touch of unless you go to a church that has like family night suppers or Wednesday night potlucks or something like that. But even then, typically, those are usually just kind of one-off things. But in the early church and in the Old Testament times, most of your religious stuff took place around a meal, a shared meal. And it's important to remember that and to give thanks. And one of the ways you can give thanks for this meal is... um, by putting a tip every week in for the kitchen staff in the back that bring out the food. None of this goes to me. This all goes to them. And we're really appreciative of how they serve us each week. So people ask, well, what should I leave? I tell them, leave what you think it's worth. Uh, be, a, be a good tipper, not just here, but in general too. Whenever you go out to eat and people are serving you, um, be, a, be a good tipper. Because Christians, we have a bad reputation for our tipping habits. As anyone who works in the restaurant industry will readily attest Sunday lunches are the least desired time to work, and it's because people go to church, and then they come, and they have a big meal, and they don't tip very much, and that's a scandal, uh, because God does care. He cares about how we treat people, how we treat the workers, how we treat those around us, and this isn't just like a, quote, social justice thing, or, or a pet peeve, or, or a, a soapbox topic. This is directly from the text that we've been looking at, and so the past couple of, uh, well, I guess the past couple of months, because we've been on and off. But we, um, we've seen God's moving into, so to recap real quick, Deuteronomy, the entire book is a second millennium Hittite suzerainty covenant treaty. Now that's a mouthful, but it's basically a document that a greater power, the suzerain, the king, would make with a lesser power, the vassal, the servant, and it would outline the stipulations for their relationship. And we are in the section right now, and we have a lot of these from the ancient world, so we know that that's what Deuteronomy is, and it follows the outline of these type of documents. And so while Moses is preaching his final words, his final sermon to his people, he's doing it in the structure of an ancient Near East reaffirming of the covenant that God made with Israel. Because that's what God did when He brought Israel out of Egypt, took them to Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with them. He was going to be their king. They were going to be His vassal. So He liberated them from service to Pharaoh in order to serve Him. And He can do that because He's the only one who is truly worthy of being served. And the word serve and the word worship the same word in Hebrew. And so that wordplay you saw, those of you that were here for Exodus, all through there. So God brought them out 
he's now in the part of the covenant document, Moses is, where he's explaining the stipulations. So this section, it goes all the way through Deuteronomy, probably around chapter 26. This section is outlining how Israel, this new generation of Israelites, remember their parents all died in the desert. Their parents made the covenant agreement first, and then they broke the covenant agreement, and then they rebelled against God, and they tried to kill Moses and go back to Egypt, and then they continued to rebel, continued to re- and finally God said, that's it, you're done, you're going to die in the desert, and your children are going to inherit the promises because my plans will not be thwarted, but you have a say in whether you get to participate in my plans or not. And so God <clears throat> brought out this next generation now. They've been living in the wilderness, in the desert, for about 40 years now. And now they're on the verge, they're on the cusp of the promised land. So Moses and, and Israel, they're all camped around in the Jordan Valley, looking across the Jordan River into the promised land. They can see the entire land laid out before them. And Moses is giving them the stipulations. Hey guys, these, this is what your parents agreed to and then went back on. So now you're getting a chance to reaffirm these, these covenant stipulations and accept them. And the book's going to end with a covenant acceptance ceremony that's going to take place once Israel crosses into the land. And so Moses is in this section laying out, this is how you're going to live. And he's not laying it out like just a series of random laws. You need to see the artistry in the book. Is the, this is the section where you give the stipulations. And then the section that comes after that will be, now if you follow these stipulations, this is what I'll do for you. And then the section after that. But if you break this agreement, if you, if you void the contract, then these are the penalties for it. And it gets really dark because that's the whole purpose of ancient Near East Covenant documents were to give the people a national symbol of their agreement that they are all participating in. And we'll get to that in, uh, later in the year when we get there. But um, in this section we've seen, so Moses first starts talking about the primary thing, which is no worshiping the Canaanite gods. They're going in to dispel, to displace the Canaanites because the Canaanites have not just worshipped other gods, but they've entirely corrupted themselves in the worship of these other gods, doing the, most imag- the, the worst imaginable actions that a society can do. And not just their sexual deviancy, but all the way to child sacrifice and to rampant violence and to the things that, that God detests. And He tells Israel, do not do these things. Do not be like the people you're displacing or you'll be treated like the people you're displacing. And that's the constant warning that echoes through Deuteronomy. So he starts by telling them not to worship the Canaanite gods and not to eat the Canaanite foods that had the association with the Canaanite gods and also to be different in the midst of these people who they're going into to displace because Israel is going to be right in the center of the nations. Israel is going to be, if you look at, I mean, geographically, there's a reason why the land of Canaan today, the Middle East, is so contentious. Because every empire wants to have a foothold there. It's been going on since the, the millennia ago. It's the crossroads between three continents. The, the three continents of the old world. Asia, Europe, Africa, right there. To get between them, you go through Israel. And so, <clears throat> this is what they're going to be. They're going to be right there at the epicenter of the world and relate to God in a way that shows all the surrounding nations who this God is, who is protecting these people, their covenant God. And that in turn will then draw, at least the plan is, will draw the nations into a, a relationship with God. The things that went wrong all the way back in Genesis, the first 11 chapters. 
So this is all why God's called Abraham and his descendants out of Babylon into this place called Canaan. And he's created them to be not just a, a person and a family and a tribe, but now an entire people, a mixed multitude, ethnically Jewish. Well, Judaism's an anachronism because that's much later. At this point, ethnically, you would say Hebrew uh, or Israelite, but also people who are not ethnically Israelites, but yet who are part of the covenant people. And, and can't overemphasize that because in our minds we think Israel Jews and that's not the case and it's never been the case the first Israelite half of the first Israelites that left Egypt and went into Canaan were Gentiles there were only two Joshua and Caleb but Caleb was a Gentile so it's really important to keep that in mind and and, and to, to dismiss the idea of ethnic uh, identity because that's not what God has in mind it's covenant faithfulness identity so that's why John the Baptist could say hey God can raise up descendants of Abraham from these rocks. You know, you, who your parents are do not matter. It's who your father in heaven is. That's what determines whether you're in standing with God's people or not. And that continues all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament and even today. And it has major ramifications for how we view the world and, and God's calling and His people and Israel and Middle East and politics and all of this stuff. But the core message has not changed, which is covenant faithfulness is what determines membership in the covenant people of God. Without covenant faithfulness, you are cut off from the covenant. And that's what he's emphasizing over and over and over and over in Deuteronomy. So that covenant faithfulness involves, again, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the dietary laws. And then last week we looked at the economic laws about how you treat debt and canceling debt and how you treat servants and how you treat immigrants and how you treat foreigners. And, and we let those words challenge us because they should challenge us. And then now we come to chapter 16, which is how do you celebrate together as a people this identity that you have? This identity as God's people, how do you celebrate it in the land that you're about to go into as God's covenant theocratic nation? How are you going to celebrate it? And so he says, chapter 16, verse 1, Observe the months of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. Because in the month of Aviv, He brought you out of Egypt by night. Now, Aviv is the older name of this Hebrew month. It means roughly, uh, or literally, like new head of grain. And this was the time when the, new, the, 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 the heads of the grain started to appear. It's a harvest term. Later, after the Babylonian captivity, this month Hebrew name would get changed to Nisan. And it corresponds with our month of basically like um, mid-March to mid-April. So this is springtime. So the beginning of Israel's religious year came in the springtime. Not the new year, not the calendar year, but the, the religious, the harvest. This is the harvest calendar. So in the month of Aviv, this is going to be tied into when God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt did what we know of as the Passover event, the Exodus event, at the springtime of the harvest. God was bringing His harvest out of Egypt and going to plant it in Canaan. There's the, the imagery is, is everywhere through it. So Israel's identity is, is, um, is tied up in the agricultural year. Why? Because God was bringing them into a land and they were going to live off of that land and the land itself was the grant that the king had given his vassal. The land itself was their inheritance. So of course their identity would be tied up in the land. But unlike the fertility cults that were in the land, the Canaanite cults, their identity was tied up in the land and their identity was tied up in the cycles of nature, but it was through worship of Baal and Asherah who were the fertility gods. 
So if Baal was the male storm god, when he'd get angry or when he'd thunder, he would send down his seed. He would literally impregnate the womb of the earth. And then Asherah, who's the mother goddess of the earth, would be fertile and would bring forth abundance of the crops. So the Canaanites worshipped their gods through this nature cycle that had to do with the sexual act. And that's why idolatry and sexual deviancy were so enmeshed in Canaan. You want to worship the gods. You want your crops to grow? Make the gods send the rain. You want to make the gods send the rain? Get them in the mood to have sex. How do you do that? By having sex with one of their representatives at a sacred place, at a high place, at a shrine, by an Asherah pole. And, and this is how it worked. And so what God is, He's completely divorcing the notion of sexuality from the, the, the notion of the cycles of nature. In, in the crops and fertility and stuff. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not how I provide for you. I provide for you through your worship of me according to these events in redemptive history, not a general sense of fertility. So he goes on to say, verse 2, sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. That's where the tabernacle will end up. They're going to do this at the tabernacle. That's their central... All this stuff about doing these sacrifices is happens at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, again, if you weren't with us for the book of Numbers, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp. And then when Israel moves into the land, the tabernacle is going to be set up at a certain place. God doesn't even say yet where it's going to be because it will actually move in different places. But wherever He chooses to place the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, wherever God says this is where you're going to camp then that's where you're going to go do these sacrifices. So the tabernacle is like Israel's cultural center. And he says, um, do not eat it with bread made with yeast. For seven days, eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction or the bread of misery, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. So the sacrificial, this is Passover. Now, there's longer descriptions of Passover. They've already received it, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28. So again, this is not giving these directions for the first time. This is recapping these directions for the next generation. So this is not the end-all, be-all of Passover. Read Leviticus 23, read Numbers 28, and if you want to see the fullness of what is involved in celebrating Passover. But what he's getting in mind here is celebrate this because this is your founding national identity. This is your July 4th. This is your day of independence. I brought you out of Egypt, and so you're going to eat this unleavened bread, matzah. You can go to the store and buy matzah bread. It's like a cracker, basically, like a saltine without the salt. And that's what you're going to eat instead of bread, instead of bread with yeast in it. Because, think back to the Passover, one, bread without yeast isn't that tasty. We don't love it. There's a reason we like puffy Hawaiian king bread or white bread. or you know, some, There's a reason we like soft, thick bread, usually rather than hard, crunchy bread. Um, and so that bread, it's the bread of affliction. It's the bread of misery. It's the bread of suffering. It's so that Israel will remember the suffering that they as a people endured for 400 years. They'll never forget their suffering. But their suffering will point forward to their redemption. And this is the key. See, in our culture, we want to do one of two things. We either want to look at our suffering, if we're from a people that have suffered, and we want to identify in our suffering completely and see everything through the lens of our suffering. It's a very common thing that people do. 
The other side is we want to say, if we're not, especially if we're from people that haven't suffered, we want to look at the people who are always looking at their past suffering and go, just get over it. Just get over it. It's been however long. Just get over it. And that's not a good approach either because God doesn't want His people to just get over it. He wants them to remember their suffering, but He wants them to remember their suffering as they look forward and as they move into their blessing that He's blessing them with. So they, they don't become... There's, there's a trend in our world, not even in our country, in our world. If you, can, if you can be the victim, you get a moral high ground. And so there's this victim uh, identifying trend that's going on and everybody wants to claim to be the victim and the oppressed. And God's taking His people and saying, yeah, you were that. You were the victims. You were the oppressed. But I'm transforming you. So don't forget that. Always look back to it. Always remind the next generation of the suffering. You don't have to get over it in that regard. That's where you came from. It's part of your story. But don't let it define you in the sense that you stay in that suffering. So this eating this bread at the Passover is accompanied with a sacrificial meal with a lamb and all of the stuff that goes along, wine and, and, and you know, strong drinks and uh, grain offerings and Passover meat sacrifices and all of this stuff. Like it's a celebratory thing, but within the celebration... There's an acknowledgement of the suffering. It was real. And so, then it goes on to say, you must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you except in the place where He will choose as a dwelling for His name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. So the Passover was a week-long thing that would happen. So there was the Passover meal was like the culmination, but it was a week-long celebration. And it was all about tying them, rooting their identity in what they had been, but now where they are in the new land. So that's why God's saying, don't do it in all your houses. Yeah, that's been fine for this generation because you've been wandering in the wilderness and before the tabernacle was even built, they had to celebrate the, the Passover. And so they did that in their tents or in their homes. But now when you get into the land, it's going to be a corporate thing. You're going to celebrate it together with each other, the people of God. So then, next, verse 9. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickles into the standing grain. So this is once the harvest starts. Uh, celebrate, then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Now this is the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot uh, in Hebrew. This is, when, this is kind of like Thanksgiving, basically. You've, you've harvested. This is still in the spring. This is the early harvest. But you've, you've harvested those buds that sprouted in Aviv, you brought them in. Now you're going to bring a portion of that and the other produce and the other things that God has blessed you with. You're going to bring this together to commemorate the end of the harvest. And this holiday also, because it's 50 days after, so 49, count off seven weeks, so that's 49 days. Then the next day, that's the 50th day, this holiday became known as Pentecost. 50th. So, this, so Pentecost was celebrating, it was a thanksgiving of, the, of the, uh, the first harvest. There's going to be a later fall harvest. So these are the first fruits. The first part has come, but we're awaiting the greater harvest at the end of the year. 
that became Pentecost, and that became associated with uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because about 50 days after Israel left Egypt, the Passover, they got to Mount Sinai. And that's where the law was given. So Pentecost had the promise God came down in fire on the mountain and gave His people the covenant. Fast forward a couple of thousand years. What day is it when the disciples are gathered in the upper room together and fire comes down and the new covenant is given? Pentecost. It's not coincidence. God's calendar year has significance for even New Testament theology. Pentecost was seen as the promise of the coming harvest, but we've got the initial harvest. Jesus was called the first fruits. His resurrection was called the first fruits. He's raised from the dead as the first fruits. That means that we look forward to all of us being raised from the dead, the full harvest. That's why Jesus uses harvest imagery when he talks about judgment and, and his kingdom. You see how all this ties together? The more you see these themes, the more they start to pop out everywhere in Scripture. And we understand the Old Testament, the New Testament starts to make a lot more sense, even down to the certain days and the festivals and the things that happened on them. So God is setting the stage. He's building the foundation for what He's going to reveal in the fullness of time in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, Pentecost, the festival of weeks, this was Thanksgiving. This was, uh, you can read again, Leviticus 23 has more about it, but look what he says. This is what this holiday is to be characterized by. Verse 11, rejoice, and that's a command. It's rejoice, sing, give praise. Rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, the Levites in your towns, and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows living among you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Follow carefully these decrees. So this Thanksgiving of Shavuot for weeks, the Pentecost, this was for everyone. This was a time of rejoicing. This was a time of celebrating. This was not a time where we get to celebrate and the hired hands do the work so that we have a good celebration. No, 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 no. no. Everyone celebrates in God's kingdom. I love Christopher Wright, whose commentary on Deuteronomy is one of the ones I'm using as I teach each week. He said, the quote in his commentary said, Israel's family festivals reached out to those without family. And I love that idea. Is the festival. See, we, hopefully by now, those of you that have been coming here for the past couple of years, you start to realize just how bogus a stereotype it is that the Old Testament was just dead ritual that people did to try to earn God's favor. It's such a, just a complete garbage understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the, the, the worship and the sacrifices, they were life-giving. They were family barbecues. They were thanksgiving. You know, think of these things. Think of Labor Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, Easter dinner, whatever you think about when you think of these big celebrations that involve families and communities and joy and happiness. That's how you need to see the, the Hebrew festivals. Not as some drudgery or some religious ritual that they have to do and they get a cracker and dip it in grape juice. and No, 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 no. Couldn't be further from that if it tried. This was celebration. That's what they were all about. And it was to include everyone. You notice how it said the aliens. And, and not like UFO aliens. Like the immigrants. We would say immigrants. Um, the, the, the people from other countries that are in your midst. They're part of it too. They get to celebrate too. So these are the spring holidays. Then in the fall, verse 13, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, which just means like dwelling places. 
Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. So this would have to do with like the, 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 the final grain. So the first harvest was the barley harvest. This would be the wheat harvest. And you thresh wheat and that's how you get your flour and stuff. And that's later in the fall. And then it would also be the harvest of olives and grapes. So making your wine and your oil. So this was like the, the, the final uh, bringing it all in. And then this was the calendar year. That's how your agricultural year worked. <clears throat> so when you bring in, after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press, verse 14, be joyful. The command again, rejoice. It's the same term, I believe. It's a command. Be joyful at your feast. And once again, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands. And your joy will be complete. You cannot miss your joy. Celebrate. Fatherless, maidservants, men servants, everybody, this is a time of partying. Why? Because you're an agrarian people and the harvest has come in. And it's a bountiful harvest. You're going to celebrate. And you're not going to celebrate to Baal or Asherah. You're not going to celebrate by offering your child as a child sacrifice or by doing ritual sex acts to try to ensure that they'll send more bounty your way. No, you're going to celebrate it by getting together and having an incredible meal. You're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner with the whole community. So, three times a year, these three holidays, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place He will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each one of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So God's saying in this covenant document, I'm going to bless you, you bring, a, you bring a portion back to me. If I bless you with a lot, bring me a lot. If I bless you with a little, bring me a little. Everybody gives proportionally. This means that God is going to be blessing some more than others. Some will be more bountiful than others. Some years will be more bountiful than others. But in God's economy, everyone is looking out for everyone else, and God is making sure that through that, everyone gets provided for. And so it's not the far left socialist, nobody owns anything, it's all, you know, no, it's not that, but it's also not the hardline libertarian capitalist where no, you only get what you earn and you're entitled to nothing else. No, God's way comes in between and says, no, 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 I'm going to provide for what the nation needs, but within that, there are going to be some who need more than others, and those who have more, you provide for those who have less, as I provide for all of you. So it's this interdependent relationship that upholds both private um, property and responsibility to work, but also a safety net and making sure that nobody falls through the cracks. And that's a balance, and we struggle with that, how to actually live that out in our own cultures throughout the world. But the, the, the spirit of it is there. And God's saying, all of this He's going to take care of. And that's why Israel is to rejoice, to celebrate. So then he's going to go on now. They're going to move into how the rest of society should function in the coming chapters. And at the end of this chapter, it switches gears and says, Now, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Literally, it means do not, literally it says do not pervert justice, misdirect justice, 
divert is the word I believe it uses, justice, and do not lift faces. And the lifting of the face, it's an idiom, but it means to, you know, if somebody's bowed, if their head's bowed and they're approaching a, a ruler and the ruler gives an edict, if the ruler lifts their face and looks at him and recognizes, then he might rule favorably if it's his friend or unfavorably if he doesn't like the person. So the head stays bowed, the ruler gives the ruling, regardless of who the person is. That's, what, that's where the idiom comes from, of do not lift face. NIV just translates that idiom, do not show partiality. And that's what it means. So judges and rulers are not to show partiality. And do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the word of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. God will go nuclear over judges that take bribes and pervert justice. You see that in the prophets. You just pick up Amos, you know, read through Jeremiah. If you want to see how God feels about officials who have been given power and who pervert that power and who take bribes and kickbacks and bend the rules and do this and that to, to massage things to work the system in their favor or at the disadvantage of others, wait until you read the prophets and you'll see what God feels about that. It's to have no place in Israel. It's to have no place in Israel. And so then he ends this chapter, uh, which is going to kind of dovetail into the next part about um, uh, foreign gods, and then they'll go back to uh, issues about courts and judges. So they're kind of interlaced, these concepts. But he ends the last one with, Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. And so this chapter that we're going to end in is emphasizing, do not be Canaanites. Do not be Canaanites. Even beside the altar. Yeah, they, what this is saying is, yeah, you, can, you have the altar built, and let me just build an altar to Baal or Asherah just to hedge my bets. And God's saying, no. God and God alone. Justice and justice alone. There's no syncretism allowed. And that's exactly what Israel is going to get exiled for. Because they're going to completely ignore this. The wisest king who ever lived is going to completely ignore this and the next chapter, and that's going to be the downfall of Israel's history during the reign of Solomon. But we got to go. Time's up. We'll see you. Listen, next week, we're not going to meet. Okay, so next week, I'm going on vacation uh, with my family. We've had a rough past few weeks, so we're going to go. But the week after, we'll kick back up and we'll continue meeting. So if you show up next week, there's nothing here. All right? Week after. All right, everybody have a great week.